And now I'd like to introduce our lecturer for today. The Reverend Dr. Christy Lang Hurlson is Assistant Professor of Religious and Theological Education at Villanova University. Any Villanova fans? Oh, a couple of you, okay, all right. Okay, well, gosh, got that. <laughs> a Presbyterian minister, she received her Master of Divinity degree in 2005 from Princeton Theological Seminary and her PhD in Practical Theology, also from Princeton Theological Seminary in 2016. She served as Associate Pastor of Christian Education at the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City from 2005 to 2010. She currently teaches courses about the role of attention in spirituality and leadership, as well as faith and consumer culture, spirituality of children and youth, and holistic pedagogy and the incarnation. Just a couple areas of expertise. Originally from Washington State, anybody? Oh, a couple of you, okay. Originally from Washington State, she and her family recently moved from the Boston area to the Philadelphia area. She's married to the Reverend Dr. Adam Hurlson, and they have two young sons, Elliot and Eamon. Dr. Lang Hurlson is the editor of and featured author in the book, How Youth Ministry Can Change Theological Education If We Let It. If you're interested in that book, we have two copies, one in this building, one in Mackay. Please check it out. It's an excellent, excellent book. And finally, her passions include things like preaching, riding ferry boats, mostly when she's on the West Coast, community building, thrifting, Thai food, and my favorite, red shoes. One of the things, <laughs> I know she didn't wear red shoes today. I was crestfallen. Um, one of the things that I admire about Dr. Lang Hurlson and her scholarship and ministry is that she takes the agency, the capacity of young people seriously, which is something that I think people in youth ministry deeply appreciate. She's unafraid to remind us of the ways in which we ourselves might encounter God through the young people in our ministries. And youth ministers of all people know what it feels like to be caught in a holy moment of meeting our risen Lord in the face and lives of those whom we are called to serve. Please join me in welcoming the Reverend Dr. Christy Langhurlson. Wow, thank you, thank you. It is such a joy to be here with you. You all are my favorite people, people who work with youth and care about young people. So thank you for the work you do for your ministry and all the forms it takes, and it is so good to be with you. And thank you to the Institute for inviting me. It's really an honor to be here. I want to ask you to imagine a blueberry. Please just let your eyes gently close and imagine there's a blueberry sitting in your mouth. Now imagine you bite down on it and chew it. And swallow it. And you can open your eyes. Go ahead, turn to your neighbor, tell them what happened. What happened just now when you were imagining that blueberry in your mouth? Uh, so who tasted it? Who could taste it? Mm -hmm. Who felt your mouth begin to salivate? Yeah. Who was like, I can't get there. Can't get there yet. Who thought, yuck, can't stand blueberries? All right, yeah. Okay. Who thought, I'm kind of starting to crave blueberries now. Okay, interesting. So 
our imaginations are tremendously powerful. They don't just affect what we think, they actually affect our bodies. We salivate when we imagine a blueberry, even if we don't like blueberries, right? So our bodies respond to our imaginations. Our actions in the world are caught up in our imaginations. So I'm really interested in thinking about we who work with youth engaging our own imaginations and the imaginations of our youth, especially when it comes to thinking about how we can act in the world. When I think about youth, youth ministry, imagination and vocation, I think about these sorts of questions. What might following Jesus look like for me today? And we, we ask youth to think about this. I hope we ask ourselves that all the time. How might I respond to the world's needs, the world's suffering, the world's injustice? How might I contribute something good? Who might I join with? These are questions of vocation, calling. Who am I called to be? Who is this God who is calling me? What am I being called to do? And to do those things, we need imagination. You've got to be able to imagine some possibilities, some possible answers to these questions. You need an imagination to respond to your calling, to even imagine what your calling might be. I want to tell you a story, a story of limited imagination, because I think this makes clear what is at stake for us who work with youth and some of the big problems that we face. This is a story that was told to me by a freshman, a young woman at Villanova, who uh, went shopping with friends. Now, she uh, had been in my foundation's theology class for a few weeks, and in that class, I do an introduction to thinking theologically about the world, and all semester long, we use a case study of consumerism, because so many theologians and religious scholars say that today, the American religion isn't Christianity or Judaism. It's not New Age. It's consumerism. This is our religion. And you know this because instead of greeting someone and saying, peace be with you, or how is your mother, or God be with you, we say, I like your shoes. Consumerism is our culture and our religion. And so because of that, I want students to really wrestle with what their God is. Who is their God, really? What do they really love? What do they really trust in? So we use consumerism. Now, we're a few weeks into the semester, and my student goes shopping with friends, and they'd heard about this new, this new store. It's one of these fast fashion stores, like Primark, H&M, Forever 21. You've all been into them. They sell lots and lots of really cute, cheap clothes. So they were excited. They walked into this store. They'd never been in there before. And she says, we were just astonished at the racks of super cute, cheap clothes. And we were kind of giddy. And we're just like going through the racks and grabbing stuff. And she grabbed this dress. And she was like, it's so cute. And she looked at it. And she says, oh, it only costs $12. And then she said, because of this class, I, I stopped for a second. And I thought, wait a second. How does a company source the fabric by a design cut the fabric, sew it together, chemically treat it, press it, fold it, put it in a box, put that box on a ship, ship it halfway around the world, put it in a store, pay for the lights, and pay somebody to work here. 
for $12. Who is getting paid for this? So she got out her phone, and she looked up who makes the clothes for this store. And this is what came up right away. This image of the collapse of Rana Plaza Garment Factory in Bangladesh. This was in 2013. 1,134 people died. Over 2,500 people were injured, many amputees. It is the worst disaster in the history of the garment industry, but it is by no means the only disaster. These sorts of things happen all the time. She looked at this, and then she looked at this. And at this. And she looked up and she said, you guys, oh my gosh, did you know people are dying making these clothes? People are dying. People are dying making these clothes. Did you know people are dying making these clothes? And her friends looked at her and they said, yeah, that's sad, but that's how all clothes are made. And one of them said, come on, if I didn't buy my clothes here, where would I even get any clothes? And another said, well, what can you do? And someone said, well, at least those people have jobs. If we didn't buy the stuff, they wouldn't have a job. And they all kept shopping, except the students. So here's our urgent question. How, how can we help youth imagine possibilities for vocation when their imaginations and ours are colonized and malnourished? They're colonized by consumer culture and malnourished. We can't imagine other possibilities. And what do images have to do with it? So briefly, when we talk about imagination, what is it? Now, I draw this from uh, Jim Davies, who is a, a director of the Science Imagination Laboratory at Carleton University. Kind of want that job. Uh, so he, uh, he says, he provides the first two definitions, and I've put the one in the middle. But he says, imagination is, on the one hand, like your mental imagery. It's your stock of images that you've got in your head from your experience in life, the stuff you can imagine. If I say carrot, you picture carrot, because you've seen carrots. And people who can't see also have a stock, a kind of an inward inventory of ideas, of representations. We represent the world inwardly. And then there's envisioning. Envisioning. This is like when I say, you know, I can imagine going on a wonderful vacation, or I can imagine what your life must be like. I'm envisioning other realities. And then Davies says sometimes we mean creativity the ability to make something new out of what there is. He says, all of this is imagination, but we kind of have to be careful that we know what we're talking about when we start talking about imagination. So there's mental imagery, envisioning, and creativity. Now, this is really interesting. I'll read this for you since it's a bit small. Davies says this, we're only able to imagine recombinations of ideas and concepts we already have. 
sometimes these are very sophisticated and abstract concepts, but it's hard to come up with revolutionary novel things for this reason. That kind of novelty takes generations of people building on ideas in the cultures that they're born into. So he says, we need, we, we're super creative in that you can recombine all kinds of things. But if you've never seen something, it's really hard to imagine it. So he gives this example of remote tribes people trying to understand what a car is. And someone trying to explain it to them over and over, and they just don't get it. They've seen nothing that approximates it. They cannot imagine it. So he says, imagination actually is fueled by memory. Isn't that cool? Imagination is fueled by memory. You think I'm just thinking forward when you imagine. I'm also thinking back. I'm grabbing from my memory and thinking into the future. So I want to ask you for a second, again, to turn to each other and think about this story, about these comments these young women make. So look how cute these clothes are and so cheap. Yeah, that's sad. That's how all stores are. If I didn't buy clothes from places like this, where would I get any clothes at all? What can you do? At least those people have jobs. Talk to each other for a second. What images have colonized their imaginations? What are, they, what are they thinking? What's in their heads here or in their hearts? And then what are they able to imagine? What does this reveal that they're able to imagine? Well, I want to suggest that images can help us in two major dimensions here. So if our imaginations have been colonized, I want to suggest that the answer isn't just to get rid of all images. Now, I'm Presbyterian, my reformed forebears did not like images. They thought they colonized our imaginations and they were temptations. But I actually don't think that that's a requirement. I think that we might use images powerfully to do some freeing work from the colonizing force of the images that we've inherited and been exposed to. And then later I'll talk about how I think images can help open up some possibilities for us to expand our imaginations. So first, I want to suggest that we can use images, visual or verbal, so you could describe something, to unearth our own training, our assumptions, our desires, our gods. So here's a little activity I do, like three or four weeks in, to talk about the power of branding and just to help my students understand how colonized their imaginations are. So you're going to need to look up at the screen. This is going to go by very quickly. What can we name? Wow. And so then we spend a whole class unpacking several of these and saying, what's the world of meaning associated with this? Who wears this brand? What does it say about you when you wear it? And they know. They know they have a whole universe of meaning attached to each one of these. Now, interestingly, the only image that my students never catch, and I go through the slideshow six times with them, is, um, I'll go back till I find it. This one. Does anyone know what it is? It's the papal emblem. <laughs> I'm at Villanova. It's a Roman Catholic institution. <laughs> they, and they, and like once I show it to them for like three minutes, someone's like, is that like the Pope symbol? And then they think this is hilarious. And they're like, he really needs a better marketing campaign. <laughs> okay, so flashing through again to the end. 
I also use images to uh, help them, I ask them to create images to help them unearth their own assumptions. I, this is the assignment. I, on the, I, uh, I say, this first thing we're doing today, just get out a piece of paper, I hand out markers, I say, draw a picture of yourself living a good life. That's all it is. I don't give them any more directions than that. And um, some students very graciously lent me their pictures. So this is one, a good life. Well, this is a bit difficult to see. Um, there is a giant house here, um, a dog. She says, my, my briefcase, happy, healthy, educated kids, books, friends, a road paved with money that goes to a secure job, and the dog. Um, again, a house, mom, Izzy the cat, uh, a patient at a hospital, this is, she wants to be a nurse, and then here's the earth, but this is me and Ben, we're traveling around the world together. Beach, house, two people, dog. Two little people. <laughs> and two little people in there, often yes. Yeah. Um, so interest, some, a few interesting things that I notice is that um, in about 95% of the images, there's a giant house. That's the first thing most of them draw, actually, before people, a big house. And then uh, we go through and we analyze these. And I say, who's in your picture? And we see, and a lot of people are like, oh, I'm the only person in my picture. <laughs> well, one guy was like, I'm not even in my picture. <laughs> And then we need, you know, cats, dogs, what are you doing? An, an astonishing amount of time, what they're doing is this. <laughs> just standing, just sort of static. Well, then the next week, I asked them to draw a picture of themselves living a virtuous life. So this is someone, she's handing out food. Now, interesting, like there's an action now, and there's some more people. Oh. I forgot to tell you one other thing. After we analyze this for a while, I ask them, since we're several weeks into class, so remember that woman in Bangladesh who makes your clothes? Where does she go in your picture? And, um, and they, they just, at first, like, there's this sort of puzzlement. And then a bunch of them draw her in. But they're not sure where to put her. And they, or they just draw a dotted line from them to her. But they're not really sure, like, how does this connect? How does she fit into my good life? So we go on to our virtuous life, and, um, and then most of them are handing out food to poor people. Uh, this one's interesting. She, um, kids love their mom. She is still making money, uh, but she's now giving some of it to the Red Cross. She is caring more about the earth. And... Um, I honestly don't know what all the symbols mean in this. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to talk with her. But yeah, we've got peace and justice. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure everything. But there's a lot more going on. Um, this one here, she's at a hospital. Here's someone lying down. Solar panels, eco-friendly house, love, kids. I don't know if this is traveling around the earth or what. Um, she's now vegan. Um, <laughs> has animals and a garden. She's spraying her garden. <coughs> and then uh, giving food again. 
So one of the things that we talk about then is I ask them, why is it that we all have two different good lives? Like, because virtuous is another way of saying good, right? So you have your good life and your life where you're being good. Why aren't those in the same picture? And what would it take to get you there? And where does that woman in Bangladesh go in your pictures? Because she's still not there. The point isn't to make them feel dumb. It's to make them think, oh yeah, I've actually got this whole internal imagination of what it looks like to live good and be good. Does it go together? Have I stitched any of this together? Have I thought about this? Where did it come from? And if in class I'm going, yeah, really money isn't the way to happiness, but then what I've drawn is a giant house, and seriously, I didn't have any of them, but some of the pictures, the house is like three quarters of the picture. That's our image. And then there's everything else that sort of happens around it. I also think images can help free our imaginations when we use them to reveal and critique the realities that are hidden from us. So there's asking them to unearth their own assumptions and what they've absorbed. But I use a lot of documentaries, use a lot of images, we read news stories, and they're troubling. So I show this trailer in class, and we talk about what we noticed. There is a moment in there where Cambodian police are shooting at Cambodian protesters. The protesters are asking for a, a living wage of $170 a month. That's so much more than they make. And um, this happened multiple times in multiple countries where it's actually illegal to strike like this or to protest, and people are shot. So it's usually at this moment where I start tearing up in class, right? And I'm kind of trying to hold it together. My students are just like, just sitting there. And this semester, a student raised her hand and she said, what can be done? Do you hear how that's the same words? Those are the same words that the girls in the mall asked. But not the same meaning at all. What can be done? I give up. Or what can be done? Really, what can be done? I think images like this are so powerful because they push you emotionally to say, this is not tolerable. What can we do? What can be done? So how can our imaginations be renewed? Because in both cases, those young women said, what can be done? The first one, her imagination was so stunted, so malnourished, that she just sort of gave up. The second one really, really, really wanted an answer, and she was looking at me for it. But she couldn't think of anything. She was like, I come up empty here. What can be done? Please tell me. And I had to say, this is a practical theology course. We will be getting to the strategic task later in the semester. <laughs> but I tell you, by the time we get to the point where we start talking about what can be done, there is this massive outpouring of energy in this class. I put up verses from the Bible, and they're like, how does this help us? They're super into it. These are not, they have to take my class. They are not necessarily religious students. They really, truly want to know what can be done.
<clears throat> so I think our imaginations can be renewed in part if we start with <coughs> active hope. We need to imagine with active hope. This is the difference between saying, this is really hard, what can be done? And no, really, what can be done? Really, what can be done? So when you're having one of those conversations and someone goes, yeah, but like, wouldn't those people lose their jobs? Then you go, yeah, maybe. I wonder what can be done about that. Or, uh, you know, everyone buys the cheapest clothes possible. Like, don't you think that that's just the way it is? It might be. What do you think we could do about that? It's a different response to the situation. You start with active hope. And, um, you know, I'm Protestant working at a Catholic institution. And, um, and I, so I've gotten exposed to the work of Pope Francis. And he has this remarkable speech he gave to teachers in Argentina before he was pope. And he has this chapter in it called Being Creative for an Active Hope. He says, um, this isn't a matter of a kind of official balance between pessimism and optimism. It's not like you're saying, well, I'm not quite pessimistic and I'm not quite optimistic. He says, no, this is hope. And he says, we're talking about hope. Hope does not feel comfortable with either of those two options. He says, let's center ourselves in creativity as a characteristic of active hope. Creativity, where he says, you start with the way things really are in the real world. You don't get to start all over. That's the way the world really is. But then you don't just imagine yourself repeating the same world. You say, I really, truly believe there's another option. I believe there are probably lots of other options. And he grounds it in the doctrine of creation. I want to ground it in this statement by Paul from Ephesians. The one, now to the one who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. Christians don't get to say what can be done. Everything, everything can be done because of the Holy Spirit's work. Everything. And then he says this vision for making the world better takes its strength from two elements. On the one hand, the disagreement, dissatisfaction, or malaise that present reality provokes, and on the other, the unbreakable conviction that another world is possible. So this is what I keep trying to work on with my students all semester long. Let's imagine a different world. What would it take to get there? So imagine with active hope. And then second, concretely invite youth to discover alternatives. They can't make them up on their own, but there's so much out there, and they can discover it. It's not enough, though, just to say, can you just go discover some alternatives? So what I do in my class at the very beginning of our last unit is that um, they come in, and I divide them up into groups, and I ask them, I take, I, like, here's your challenge. You have a challenge. I give them each a budget, and then they have the internet at their disposal, and I ask them, one group, create a sustain or an ethically sourced summer wardrobe for a woman. Find four pairs of ethical, sustainable men's shoes for someone in your group. Plan a sustainable, zero-waste birthday party. Plan two dates that don't depend on consumer culture with a total budget of $60 for both dates altogether. And source a toxin-free, sustainable set of face and hair products for someone in your group. Now, I don't just want them to discover answers to these. What I want them to do is twofold. I want them to realize that sometimes finding alternatives is as simple as just asking the question. Is there someone doing this differently? The answer is yes. So if you came in here today thinking that your only alternatives for clothing are things that are made really unethically or that are brand new to you, I hope that you will go and look, wow, how could I have a more ethical wardrobe? Because I, I actually think Christians should really care about this. 
kids sleeping on the floor while their mothers work in a factory should bother people who care about kids, right? Okay, so I asked them to do this for two reasons. One is just to realize, like, sometimes I just need to look. And the second is because of the way Google and other search engines work. Once you've looked something up, <laughs> it keeps coming back. And my students have said that for weeks after this, their computers kept offering them sustainable shoes and natural health products and, and linking them to companies that put sustainability and human rights at the center of their mission, bringing news stories to their eyes. And they suddenly realized, like, oh, I can get stuck in an, an eternal loop of my own consuming desires, or I can actually you turn technology to my own advantage, and I can get put into a loop where I hear about what other people are doing. <clears throat> Finally, present models from the past and the present. There's this really great tradition in Roman Catholicism that I kind of miss, which is the saint, where we say, no, we're not all Jesus. But look, here's someone who followed Jesus. And here's someone else and someone else. And they did it in this whole host of ways. They're not all the same as each other. Because it can wake up your imagination to think, huh, I wonder if I could live like that. So what I do in this last unit is, um, before I tell you that, I actually, I love this text from Matthew. I think it's one we sort of ignore. But here's Jesus doing this, OK? So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Jesus is, as he himself says, Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't have to provide another example than his own behavior, but he does. He looks to the past and says, look, here's someone who acted differently. I wonder what David could teach us right now. Maybe your imagination could open up a little bit to allow this person in to set a new way of living for you. So um, Pope Francis, again, he. Actually, I had planned, I, I've, I've been doing this course this whole semester and then discovered this book and realized that he's telling me to do the things that I'd sort of stumbled into along the way. And I thought it would have been quite convenient if I'd read this first. <laughs> but, uh, but the way he puts things, I think, is really helpful. He says, our schools ought to be, and we could say our, our churches, our youth ministries ought to be a space where our children and youth can make contact with the vitality of our history. There's real stuff there that we can learn from. And then he says, let us rouse ourselves to propose models of life to our pupils. Like to say, here's an example. Here's something that you could live toward. So what I do is I pick a bunch of different models from Christian history. I'm just going to tell you about three. And I tell them the, the little story of where it came from. And I show them how it's rooted in scripture. And then I show them contemporary parallels, religious and non-religious. So I didn't really ever think college freshmen would be interested in the desert fathers and mothers. But when you set it up as an alternative to the way that they see themselves living and that they're now sick of, it's suddenly fascinating. So we talk about the desert fathers and mothers in the second century fleeing the cities, 
living in caves, building these little tiny communities, trying to live in simplicity, trying to say no to desires that they thought would lead them astray. It's the ascetic impulse. And we talk about how asceticism is about self-discipline, being a spiritual athlete, where you're willing sometimes to say no to yourself. We talk about the church tradition of the liturgical calendar of feasts and fasts and how most of us don't fast anymore. We don't fast from anything, not just food, anything. What does this tradition have to teach us? And then I point out people who are doing asceticism today in religious and non-religious contexts. This is a family living in a tiny house. The tiny house movement is, is an ascetic impulse. The minimalists, uh, there's a film, a documentary about them. These guys live with 100 possessions or fewer. Uh, there are minimalists with families, by the way. And then um, the Buy Nothing Day, it's, it's a, a thing by Adbusters. Um, and uh, so the cartoon says, look, honey, I bought something today. Oh, darling, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> so, because in consumer religion, your virtue is demonstrated by your acquisition of new things. That's actually how you're a good person in consumer religion, is by getting new stuff. And so to stop being caught in that cycle requires an ascetic impulse to say, no, no, I don't have to say yes to everything. And so by nothing day is Black Friday, because Black Friday is the high holy day of consumer religion. And so instead of being among the masses who rush in and grab TVs away from other people, you buy nothing. And then we talk about this ask them, what, how, how is this promising? How is this exciting? Where does this freak you out? Why isn't, why isn't this enough? So here's a student response. They write journals. This is an ascetic response. Companies are routinely ignoring these conditions because of our demand for branded goods at the absolute lowest prices. Well, not anymore. I refuse to participate in this and will not be shopping at that store again. I refuse to separate my faith and economy. I refuse to ignore the well-being of others for the sake of my clothes. It's high time I stopped being a hypocrite that claims to care about the sweatshops, yet continues to participate in the exploitation of workers around the world, a college freshman. Um, and then I talk about the aesthetic model. And this is the idea that um, instead of saying no to everything, you savor the world. You perceive what is beautiful and celebrate it and you try to contribute beauty to the world. So we talk about this tradition of great church art. Not every Christian in history is an ascetic. Some of them are artists and patrons of the arts. Katie Douglas is over here, and she's the expert in this. You can talk to her if you're interested in the ascetic model. And uh, this quote, quotation up here that many of my students say is one of the most powerful of the semester is by eco-theologian Matthew Fox. He says, if we savored more, we'd consume less. So I actually bring in blueberries, real blueberries, and carrots, and we do this mindful eating thing where we slow down and actually try to experience, what is this thing like? And um, I bring in things I own that I really love, this mug that a potter made for me, a quilt that my husband's grandmother made. And I talk about how I love these things, and there is nothing wrong with loving them. In fact, the more we really, truly love our stuff, the less we'll be caught up in this primary dimension of consumerism, which is that we're, on this, that we're standing at this conveyor belt. And we just bring stuff in and send it out the door. 
it's more than just I'm buying stuff. Consumerism is about I don't care where it came from, I don't care where it's going. So when you stop and you really appreciate it, you stop the conveyor belt, you say this thing here. It doesn't have to be a mug or a quilt, it could be your phone that someone made in China. Stop and value it. I don't care if it's three years old. Really, like, get your head around the fact that this is an amazing thing. Value it, and you slow down. And then we look at people who are engaged in the aesthetic impulse today. So we look at contemporary artists, people who um, advocate you know, logging off, shutting down, going outside. So don't, you don't need to go to the mall to have fun. Just go take a walk. Like, actually, that makes you happier. It is proven many times over, going for a walk will make you happier than going and buying something. Um, or uh, we look at a trailer for this documentary, Cooked, which is about slowing down, cooking, appreciating food. There are lots of dimensions of the aesthetic model. But asking students to really think about what they own. Here's a student response. I love this one. She says, I'm wearing my one of my grandmother's rings that was handed down to me when I graduated from high school. And there's a chair in my living room that was my great great uncle's. I thought about something I'd be able to hand down to my kids and then their kids later on down the road, and I genuinely couldn't think of anything. There's nothing that I own that has that much sentimental value to it, and that's mainly because everything I have is relatively cheap and disposable. My grandmother had a few rings, each of which was in her possession for years and had emotional value. I have a giant collection of rings, all of which were less than $5 and turned my fingers green. And another aesthetic response, the world is truly interconnected and it is also wholly and directly connected to God. Both of those things are plain to see by simply walking outside for a few minutes. As we start to reach the end of this class, I think I've begun to realize that I use my destructive consuming habits as a cop-out when I don't want to face my problems. In the future, I think that instead of taking a walk around the mall to add more weight to the earth and my own load, I'll take a walk around my neighborhood instead to lessen it. I've tried it once already and I noticed a difference immediately. And finally, we look at the monastic or communitarian model, where we talk about communities committed to simplicity, to sharing, to generosity and hospitality, and also holding one another accountable. If you live in a monastery or an intentional community, you can't just come home and say, look, I bought a car for us. You can't even say, I bought a computer for us, because people will say, we did not talk about that. So we talk about what if instead of assuming that the answer to every problem we face is to buy something new, like there must be something on Amazon to solve my problem. I do this, I'm quite aware that I do this, right? But what if instead of doing that, my first thought was, can I turn to a neighbor? Is there someone I know who could help me with this? And then we look at people doing monastic and communitarian practices today. So we look at, at Shane Claiborne in Philadelphia. They have no, none of my students, out of 50 students this semester even knew about him. So they were like, what? They do what? How does that work? Aren't they afraid? They're super fascinated by it. Um, we look at the Buy Nothing Project, which is different than Buy Nothing Day. Buy Nothing Project is about local gift economies, hyper-local gift economies. Are any of you in one? You can go onto Facebook, look it up, join a Buy Nothing Project. Basically, it's like Craigslist with no money, and you build relationships, right? So you say, I have this watering can, and I don't use it. I would love to give it to somebody. And they, someone says, yeah, I want that. And you meet up and you give it to them. But it's hyper-local, so you'll run into this person later on. And it creates this little tiny 
local gift economy. And it just started a few years ago in Bainbridge Island, Washington State. And there are now buy nothing groups all over the entire world. And we look at a simpler way. Uh, it's a documentary about a group of young adults who for a year moved to a sustainable agricultural community, an intentional community, and try to live simply and in community. And my students are like, wait, what do they do if they have to go to a doctor? Like, they're, they're, are there children there? They really have real questions about this, which is exactly what you want, right? Like, what a gift to have young people have a real question. So here is a communitarian response from a student. Sharing is how we as humans can live faithfully in union with God, and sharing also demonstrates how God works through us. This goal is obtainable today if we are willing to reconsider our economic and material resources. Places like the Tizay community, which the student read about, are living proof that sharing is possible, and a fair distribution of resources can lead to success and happiness. And a second one. I just started getting involved with Students Against Sweatshops. That's a campus group. I'd like to believe that God will just solve workers' problems, but unfortunately, it's on us to make sure workers' rights are accomplished. This is intimidating because it literally means that someone like me has to do something, and that's scary. I'd much rather believe that someone else or God could solve these important issues. But if I have faith, God will provide me with the courage and strength to fight for change for workers who have no voice. She literally had never heard of, Vill of Villanovans Against Sweatshops. And through this process, decided she was going to act. In fact, I, I got this email midway through the semester from the president of this group saying, I don't know why, but your students keep showing up at our meetings. <laughs> and they hadn't told me that. Because they weren't doing it in order to get a grade. They were doing it because they suddenly could imagine a different world, one where God wanted more for them and for people everywhere, and they believed maybe it was possible. I'm going to end here. Imagine with active hope, concretely invite youth to discover alternatives. Present models from the past and the present, and then invite youth to, to propose real responses and listen because they're amazing. My students are in the midst of their group presentations. I am stunned by what they have come up with. They, they each chosen a problem that really involves them, that they're complicit in, and they're teaching their fellow students about what they could do. They're not saying what can be done. They're not even saying what really can be done. They're saying, you don't think that there's anything you can do, but there is. You think you can't do anything. A student said this. You think you can't do anything, but you can't. 